Matthew chapter 7. We are resuming our series in Matthew, and I thought it would be helpful for us to remind us of where we've been, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon text this morning is a summation and a continuation of what Jesus has already been saying. And so in order to understand it properly, we need to know what he has said so far. We saw in the first section, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, that God in Christ Jesus calls us to life in the kingdom, which is a blessed life. It's a blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that comes to us as a gift. The blessings of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God is all given to us as a gift. And this, this life that Jesus is portraying, the life in the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, is all given to us as a gracious gift. Even though it's filled with do's and do nots and many commands, it is a gracious gift. And we saw in chapter 5, verses 17 to 40, the second half, as Jesus talks about all of these different, you have heard it said sayings, but I say to you. We saw that what Jesus is calling for, in light of the gift of the grace of the gospel, is a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees had. It's not just holiness, but it's a redemptive righteousness. A righteousness that actually brings about the the kingdom of heaven. It's a righteousness that doesn't accomplish it apart from Jesus or anything like that. But by acting in a way that is redemptive, Citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those who belong to Christ, actually bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on earth. We do this in in imitation of Jesus himself who did this. Then we saw in chapter 6, with those examples of prayer and giving and fasting, that there's a danger associated with the pursuit of righteousness, with the pursuit of holiness. And that danger is doing these things in order to be seen by others. We'll see today there's a connection between that and our text today as we seek to be justified by our actions in relation to others. In chapter 6, it was seeking to be justified by doing what is holy in front of others so that they'll notice and they'll think, man, he's really holy or she's really holy. Jesus said, don't do that because then you've received your reward, but rather seek the reward that is in heaven. And then we saw in the second half of chapter 6, As Jesus talked about the danger of being possessed by our possessions, by by treasuring what is on earth and not what is in heaven, we saw that we are called instead to seek our security, to seek our provision in our good father, in the one who gives, in the father who takes care of the birds and the trees. We are called to seek the kingdom of heaven And the righteousness that accompanies it and entrust all of our provision and security to God the Father. And we'll see that that theme is echoed again today. Our text today in Matthew 7 verses 1 to 12 may at first read seem kind of random. We'll see that as we read through. It seems like Jesus might be just adding a few other things that he kind of forgot to mention along the way. Some commentators even take it that way. Some say this is just a random collection of Jesus' sayings that Matthew just kind of appended on the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't, I don't think that's a correct way to see it. I think there is a connection, but it can be difficult to see that connection. Verse 6, particularly, the one about dogs and pigs and what is holy and pearls is, is very, very hard to understand. Not that it was hard to understand in Jesus' day, but because we are separated by so much time and because we have just this little bit 
of what he said. He surely said more. It can be difficult for us to understand. But I want to offer a few helps before we read the sermon text. One of the things that I think can help us read chapter 7 rightly is to understand that this first portion of chapter 7 is actually a summary and closing of the main part of Jesus' sermon. So as you say something, right, it's common wisdom and rhetoric to say something and then tell people what you said, summarize it, right? That's what Jesus is doing here a little bit. He's summarizing, and we can see that if we look down at verse 12. We'll read the whole text in a minute, but look at verse 12 for a second. Chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If we look at verse 17 of chapter 5, we'll see a very similar theme mentioned. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus says. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is what's called an inclusio, or you might think of it as bookends. There's something on the front and something on the end that have similar language and a similar theme that say, this is the main thing I'm saying, and now I'm wrapping it up just like I started. That's what Jesus is doing here. So chapter 7 is a wrapping up of the sermon. It's a summary of the sermon. This means that Jesus, when he talks about do not judge, And when he says, do not give to dogs what is holy, he's not introducing new ideas. He's actually bringing ideas he's already talked about in chapters 5 and 6 and summarizing them and talking about particular dangers as relates to them. And so if we think along those terms, that will help us understand what Jesus is trying to do. The third thing I want us to think of while we read this text and while we study it together is that Jesus is continuing a pattern he has already established. We talked about this a little bit in chapter 5, and we talked about it a little bit in chapter 6. Jesus has kind of this pattern in his sermon where he says, either you have heard it said, but I say to you, or he says, do not because, but instead do. And that's the pattern he's doing right here. We saw that in chapter 6, right? In chapter 6, when he's talking about all of these different ways to practice our righteousness before others, He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Do not. Chapter 6, verse 2. Why? Because they've received their reward. If you do that, you've received your reward already. But do what instead? When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Right? There's this pattern that Jesus is following. And that pattern is actually present in our text here. And that will help us make sense, especially of the strange verse 6. Okay? So there's a pattern. Do not... For, or why should I do not, but instead do this. And we'll see that as we go through. We're going to see as we read the text that Jesus is giving two warnings against common temptations. The first warning in verses 1 through 5. The second warning in verses 6 through 11. And then he's going to summarize the whole thing he's just said and the whole sermon together in chapter 12. Or, sorry, verse 12. And so we're going to see how all of these connect. We're going to ask, how do these warnings flow out of what Jesus has already said? And what do they have to do with the sermon as a whole? And then how do these warnings funnel us into the meaning of verse 12? The emphasis of all of this reveals for us the key to ethics in the kingdom of heaven. The key to ethical behavior or right and wrong, the understanding of why Jesus is making the commands he's doing, is revealed in this text. 
Jesus wants us to see that, I believe. So we're going to pray for God's help, and then we're going to read the text, and then dig in. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, I pray that as we read this text, and as we study it together, and as we talk about the great things that you have done in Jesus Christ, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to cry out, Christ, my delight and my reward. That our souls would find rest in the work of Jesus. That you would help us understand what can be difficult. And that you would most of all help us see clearly the glory of Christ. We need that vision this morning, Lord, to transform us. And so I pray that you would help us have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. We pray that you do this by your spirit. Only you can do it. We pray that you do the work that is necessary in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Amen. We're going to look first at verses 1 through 5 and see the first warning that Jesus gives. The warning he gives is judge not that you be not judged in verse 1 of chapter 7. Don't judge. Judge not that you be not judged. Immediately, the question has to arise to our minds. What does Jesus mean by judge? Because this is one of the most misused scriptures in all of the Bible, right? Judge not that you be not judged means you can't judge me. You can't tell me what's wrong and right. Is that what Jesus is saying? I think we can see really easily from the context that this is not what Jesus is meaning. Verse 6, he says, do not give to the dogs what is holy. In order to say that, he implies that there's some kind of person that categorizes as a dog. Jesus has made some kind of judgment. It's kind of judgy to call people pigs, right? And yet even further down, if we go to verse 15, we see Jesus say, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Recognizing them requires some kind of judgment on something being right or being wrong. So that's not what Jesus is talking about, a mere like determining of right and wrong. He's talking about something else. And I think if we look at his example that he gives, we can see more clearly what he means. He says, 
judge not that you be not judged. He gives a reason in verse 2, but I want to skip ahead to verse 3. He uses this example. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Right? That shows us that what Jesus is talking about is some kind of hypocritical judgment. Some kind of judgment that looks at your neighbor and sees their sin and looks at yourself and sees your sin. Or maybe even doesn't look at yourself, but looks at your neighbor and sees their sin and says, man, they've got to fix it. This is the kind of judgment that can easily flow from a list of things to do and not do, right? Which Jesus has just given us. In his sermon, he is telling us what redemptive righteousness, holy living in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And it can be really easy for us to respond to that message with, well, that's what Christians are supposed to be, but I see, I see Jimmy over here and that's not what he's doing, right? Or we can be really tempted to look at someone else's life and see areas where, yeah, they're just not quite conforming to the image of Christ and they ought to. And we can end up judging unmercifully, judging with contempt. I think the difference is the difference between being judgmental and judging. Judgmentalism looks at someone else, compares them to you and says they're not as good and thinks poorly of them. Judging says, I know right and wrong and scripture says this is wrong. There's a difference between those two. It's the difference between, for example, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You could pr- probably all know that story, right? I love to reference it because I think it's so helpful for us. Pharisee and tax collector going to pray. The Pharisee prays, thank you, Lord, that I am not like other sinners, even like this tax collector, right? Comparing himself, judgmentalism towards that tax collector. The tax collector says, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. He's still making a judgment. He knows what he's doing is wrong. But he's not being judgmental towards the Pharisee, even though he probably would have a right to, given the Pharisee's actions. Another example from Scripture, David and Nathan. Remember when David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then murders her husband Uriah, And he's totally blind to any of this sinfulness. And what does Nathan the prophet do? He comes up to him and he tells him a story about a man who had a tiny little lamb. And the king of the land came and stole that little lamb. And David says, that man deserves to die. And what does Nathan say? He says, you are the man, right? David is blind to the own log in his eye. Even as he looks at the speck in that hypothetical neighbor's eye. This is what... Jesus is talking about when he says, judge not that you be not judged. Why does he give us, uh, what reason does he give us for this? He says, judge not that you be not judged. Verse two, four, with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is warning that if you treat others this way, judging them this way, that God will judge you according to those standards. We know that it's God judging you because in chapter or in verse 2, you will be judged or it will be measured to you. Those are both divine passives. Those are God doing it to someone, not someone else doing it to David or to, uh, to Jesus' disciples. 
This is the law of retribution that we've already seen, for example, in chapter 6, verse 14, right? After the Lord's Prayer, we're told that if we do not forgive others, God will not forgive us. Jesus tells the story in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant who fails to forgive as he's been forgiven, who fails to show mercy as he's been shown mercy. Jesus tells us that this is a trap for us that will lead to condemnation if we fall into it. Judge not that you be not judged. But instead, verse 5, you hypocrite, what are you called to do? Remove the log from your eye. I believe what Jesus is asking or commanding us to do when he says first take the log out of your own eye is to pursue the kind of holiness that he's calling for in this sermon, right? The kind of holiness that says, be holy as I am holy, as God says to us. Jesus told us that we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. This means a lot of logging in our own eyes, right? Remove the log. Notice Jesus emphasizes an order. First, remove the log from your own eye. We ought to view that and pursue holiness first. That's where it starts. But then he emphasizes this perspective, right? Remove the log from your own eye so that you may remove the speck from your neighbor's eye. It might be tempting to think when Jesus uses the analogy of log and speck, that that means one sin is bigger and more serious than the other. That Jesus is implying that you ought not to go and admonish your neighbor because their sins aren't as big as yours. And I, don't, I think that would misunderstand what Jesus is getting at here because that would leave the door open for you to pursue holiness and eventually get to the point where you have no logs left and you can go and hunt for specks in your neighbor's eye at will. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is trying to get at is that as we look at our lives and compare our lives to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters, as he says in here, how can you see your brothers? Speck. As we look at our lives and compare them to our brothers and sisters, the sins that we have embedded within us that we need to seek forgiveness for, we need to, uh, we need to mortify, to use an older word, kill that sin. Those sins should loom large in our eyes. They should look like logs to us. And the sins in our brothers and sisters that we see should look like specks by comparison. It's, it's like uh, the, the side mirror on a car where it says objects in mirror are larger than they appear, right? Like, like, that's what it should be like to us as we look at our own life. Our distorted vision makes our sins look small to us. Many times we're even blind to them like David was. Or our hearts have become hardened and so they don't seem as serious. And the fact that our neighbor's sin, our brothers and sisters' sin, is often against us even, makes those sins seem really big. And Jesus is calling for us to have a different perspective. He's calling for us to see our own sins as needing radical intervention. And our neighbor's sins, he's calling us to be merciful. He's calling us to be patient. The goal that he's calling us towards is a goal of redemptive righteousness. Notice he doesn't say just take care of the logs in your own eye and then go your merry way. Right? What does he say in verse 5? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The goal is a holy community. The goal is to be able to speak the truth in love to one another, to exhort one another to love and good works. 
The goal is a redemptive righteousness that removes specks from each other's eyes so that we strive together as a community of God for the holiness that characterizes the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. That's the goal, to pursue this kind of holiness for the sake of our holiness together as a people. This temptation, as I said before, flows from what Jesus has already said. And it is particularly strong in the church. Notice Jesus says repeatedly, your brother's eye. And he's not just using that language as throwaway language. He's using that language to say this is talking about the community of followers of Jesus. And the temptation to judge others is particularly strong in the community of Christ. Why is that? I think one reason at least is that we bear one another's burdens. You are more likely to know the sin struggles of your brother and sister in Christ than you are the sin struggles of just some coworker or someone else in the community. As we bear one another's burdens, we learn things about each other that can lead us to draw unmerciful conclusions about one another. I think also, ironically, as your personal holiness increases, as you pursue Christ and are made more like him, Sin can take and twist that good thing to cause you to look at others who are still struggling with sins you've overcome and say, why can't they figure it out? What's wrong with them? It can cause you to grow impatient with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to not show them mercy, but to think they ought to be able to whip this thing just like you did. Not realizing that you totally have victory over any sin because of the work of Jesus. Theological disagreement can also lead us to judge one, another's, one another in this way. We hold the truths of God's word very precious. And there are some truths that are more important to agree on than others. And we can end up not treating one another like brothers and sisters. We can end up with those we disagree with. We can end up just like the Pharisees saying, Thank, God, thank you God that I am not like those liberals. That is a danger Because if they are truly in Christ, then you and I have more in common with them than we have with our blood relatives. And Jesus calls us to judge one another mercifully. That doesn't mean ignore the truth, but that means show the same kind of mercy that we've been shown. The root problem of all of this is an unmerciful disposition. An unmerciful disposition that comes from not knowing not comprehending, not remembering the depths of mercy that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are not merciful, it's because somehow you do not have a grasp of the mercy of God towards you. Either you think you deserve it, or you think you don't need it, or you just ignore it. But somehow there is a dysfunction in your understanding of the depths of mercy that you have been shown. It hasn't sunk down into your heart. If you are unmerciful towards others, I guarantee it. I think at the root of this kind of unmerciful judgmentalism is ultimately a desire to justify ourselves because we don't really feel the sense that we are justified in Christ. In other words, if I have trouble believing that God could show mercy to me, knowing the depths of my own sin, knowing the struggle I have continually with sin, I might be tempted to seek assurance of my justification by looking at other brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, thank you that I'm not like them. 
at least I'm not that bad. Maybe, I'm, maybe if I can be a middle-of-the-road Christian, God will let me in. Right? We can think like that without even realizing it, friends. That's what Jesus is warning about. That's what Jesus is admonishing us against. We cannot, we must not, use others to justify ourselves. We must not seek to use our brothers and sisters in Christ for our own justification. They can't bear the weight, and that won't last. It won't do you any good in the final end. The antidote we are called towards in light of this is to behold the Father's mercy. To behold the Father's mercy. Right? That's the only solution. The only way to learn to be merciful towards others is to experience mercy yourself. Because if you never have, you never will be able to be merciful. If you've never needed it, why would anybody else, right? We must learn to behold the Father's mercy. We see our great need. Our sin looms large like a log. Christ does this for us when he displays the holiness without which no one will see the Lord in his sermon, right? He is calling us to things that should break us because they're the exact things we fail to do. This is the function of the law to call us to repentance, But out of that, our response to that, then, as we see that great need, that huge log in our eye, must not be to stay there or to then try to shove it down by judging our neighbors. It must be to turn also and behold the cross. To behold the great mercy that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. The great mercy, the the, the tree that destroys all other logs, right? The great mercy that Jesus has shown us, the Father has shown us in Jesus, removes the log in our eyes with the gospel, enables us to see clearly so that then we can strive together for holiness. We must behold the mercy of God and experience it deeply. If you're failing to be merciful to others, in other words, the thing you need to focus on is not try harder to be merciful to others. The thing you need to focus on is God's mercy towards you in Christ Jesus. Because out of that will flow mercy to others. Don't use others to justify yourself, Jesus is saying, but pursue holiness for the good of others. This kind of redemptive righteousness of the kingdom. That's the first warning. The second warning. Do not give to dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample on them underfoot and turn and attack you. This is verses 6 to 11. The don't. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs is notoriously hard to understand what it's talking about and how it's connected to everything. I, as I was studying this and reading through different options on how to understand it, I think I changed like four times and I'm still not super confident. So it is okay to go to something in God's word and not be real confident that you understand what he's getting at. There are things we can know for certain. Okay, there are things we can know for certain. We know, for example, that at issue is what is holy and pearls. And we know some things about those, right? What is holy belongs to God. Pearls are precious. Pearls are later used in the uh, parable of the man who found that pearl of great price and, and sold everything he had to get it, right? That, that pearls represent the treasure of the kingdom somehow. Holy pearls 
are valuable and belong to God. We know also something about dogs and pigs. In this time period, in this culture, dogs were not like our fluffy, cuddly Chester. They were vicious, wild animals that ate the garbage. Pigs were not cute piglets that we turn into bacon. They were vicious, wild boars. There was a danger. We know that the pigs in Jesus' example will trample the precious pearls. There's an irreverence to the things that are holy. There's a danger that these animals will turn and attack you. Jesus has just been talking about our conduct with brothers or those inside the community of faith. And I think by extension, we can understand dogs and pigs to be those somehow at least outside of the community of faith. Those who don't respond correctly to the things of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, do not give God's holy and precious things to those who will only trample and tear them. There's some different ways to understand that. One common interpretation is to understand Jesus as giving a qualifier towards what he just said. In other words, don't be judgmental towards your brothers and sisters, but do be discerning when it comes to those outside of the kingdom. There are some who will be so opposed to the gospel that you ought to do what he tells his disciples later to do, which is shake the dust off your feet. That's one possible way to understand this. But I think the problem with that, that's actually the main way that people understand this. I think the problem with that, though, is it ignores that pattern that we've seen. Do not for, but instead do. Jesus has established this pattern, and I think that pattern means that this admonition to not throw what is holy to the dogs actually goes with the admonition to prayer in verses 7 through 11. And so we ought to understand it in light of that. So here's my tentative interpretation of what it means. I might be wrong, and that's okay if I am. We can still get the gist of what Jesus is saying. I think what he is saying is he's using give as a way of talking about entrusting something. So entrusting what is holy, what is precious, to those who will trample on it and turn and attack you. And I think that fits well if we look at what Jesus is admonishing his disciples to do when he tells them to ask, seek, and knock, right? Entrust the holy things to the world or entrust your needs to your Father, right? And he's talking about the Father's gracious provision. This fits well, I think, with what God's people have constantly been tempted to do all throughout their existence, which is look to the world for the security and the provision, the stability that they need. Israel did this all the time. It was why they were sent into exile. Because what happened, God brought Assyria as a force of judgment and called them to trust him. And what did they do? They sent envoys to Egypt and asked for chariots and armies to fight off Assyria. What did God call them to do? Return and rest, quietness and trust. That will be your salvation. And what did Israel do? They ignored him. They put their trust in chariots. All throughout the history of God's people, God's people have constantly turned to the world for security, to the world for stability, to the world for the hope of a future. And I think here, using powerful metaphorical language, Jesus is admonishing his people not to do that. It would still be a temptation for the early church, right? Turn to Rome for the stability that you need for a church. Or 
Often the church was tempted to hide in the Jewish community so that Rome would not notice them, even though they proclaimed the Messiah had come, unlike the rest of the Jews. So I think that's what Jesus is saying. Do not entrust yourself to the world. Why? The second half of verse 6, what will happen? They'll trample on what you've entrusted, and then they'll turn and attack you. That's what the world often did to God's people in the Old Testament. That's what the world often does. Entrusting yourself to the world, entrusting God's holy and precious things to those who will trample and tear is a false hope. But instead, what does he say to do? Verses 7 through 11 tell us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him instead ask seek and knock pray and trust that your father will provide what you need as his people that's what jesus is admonishing his people i believe to do it fits right in with what he already said in chapter six right trusting the father's good care who knows and clothes the flowers and feeds the birds It's an argument from a lesser to a greater. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father know how to give good? It's tremendous motivation for us to seek the Father. To seek His good care. Not to to toss what is holy and what is precious to the world, hoping that they might respond. But to come to our Father, who knows How to give good. God is a good father and a good father doesn't despise you for your weakness in coming to him. A good father does not look at you as you come to him and say, you know what? You got to kind of clean up your act before you can come. Right? God is the good father who responds to those who come to him. Like the father responded to his prodigal son. Welcoming him home. Throwing a feast. Running to meet him. God is a good father who doesn't despise your weakness, but loves to be asked for help. And not only that, he knows how to help. He knows what is needed. He knows what is necessary, and he is able to give it. It is normal that as God's people, as the kingdom of heaven breaks through, and we want to see it flourish, that we will seek security and stability. It is normal to want to do that. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human feeling and desire even that's common among all those who know and who don't know Christ. To seek some kind of security and stability. And yet, what does our world disciple us to do? Our world disciples us to look only at what we can see. Only at what we can touch. To look only at what we can have some measure and degree of control over. This was Israel's problem. They don't want to trust in the Lord. They want to count the chariots. And this is our problem too. We're tempted to look at the world. If we just had the right leaders in place. If we just had the right policies in place. If we just had enough finances. Things would be secure. Things would be stable. Things would be good. 
We're tempted even to try to buy that stability from the world. Israel actually did this. They actually literally gave the holy things to the pagan nations in hopes that they would stop trying to attack them. How stupid is that? It's not judgmental, by the way, to say that was stupid because I also would do that. It's dumb. It's ridiculous. We are tempted also to buy security from the world by compromising our message, by making it more palatable. By seeking to blend in a little bit and find some safety. We use the world, in other words. We're tempted to use the world to secure our own kingdom. Rather than doing what Jesus has called us to do, which is to radically love those in the world as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Be the fragrance of life to those who are perishing. Instead, we look to them and try to figure out how we can use them by either pitting them against each other or somehow taking shelter in them so that we can be safe. We ought not. We ought instead to ask our Heavenly Father for what we need. Why don't we ask? I think one of the main reasons at least in my own life, that I'm convicted of, of why I don't ask, like Jesus clearly tells us to, is I don't really try things that hard. You don't really need to ask for help, right, if you're never doing anything. You don't really need to ask God to work powerfully and mightily if you only attempt things that seem doable or possible. I think one of the reasons why particularly prayer is so is so weak in the Western church is because we don't attempt any big things on behalf of God. You go to a missionary field where there are massive things happening and much danger, and man, they pray, right? We don't ask because we don't feel a need. We also don't ask just from sheer unbelief. We think it doesn't matter, or that God doesn't care. He's not a good father. We doubt his goodness. I think at the core often for us of why we don't ask is that we feel unworthy. We fail to recognize the fact that we are children of God. If we are really children, we will ask, right? You don't need to tell kids to ask their folks for stuff. It just happens. They do it naturally. And yet somehow we need to be told, ask our father. We need to be told, seek. We need to be told, knock. I can tell you, you do not need to tell your children to knock on your door. They will do it, right? Unlike me, who sometimes gets ornery at being interrupted, our father's never ornery. Our father's never displeased to have us ask. We must, the antidote to all of this is, we must behold the father's generosity, his good and generous care. This is what Jesus is trying to correct with these dramatic images. We have precious things, holy pearls. All of our attempts to seek security and satisfaction in this world are like throwing those to dogs, throwing those to pigs. Instead, we have this wonderful, good father who loves us. Do not use the world for your security, Jesus is saying, but live in joyful dependence on your father. This is what redemptive righteousness looks like here. Because this is what God has called us to do all along. Has created us as a people to do. And so when we do it, we are doing exactly what we ought to do in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is calling us to.
He brings this all together in verse 12. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 are what we've heard called the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you want them to do to you. It is very, very important that we understand this admonition that Jesus is giving correctly. I think we often think in the world, and when we teach it to our kids, sometimes we mean, do unto others as you want them to do unto you so that they will do unto you as you want them to, right? In other words, treat people kindly because then you'll be treated kindly. That's what you want. Notice that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, that tells you the what. Do also to them. Why? What's the goal? For this is the law and the prophets. The goal is not so that they will do to you. To do unto others so that they will do unto you is to continue to use them in the same way that judging them so that you feel justified is. Or in the same way that casting your cares on them so that you can feel secure is. It's using people. Looking for what only God can give. It's unredemptive. It's sinful. It's destructive. It's twisted. And we do it all the time. Lord, forgive us. The goal instead that we are to strive for is obedience to God. This is the law and the prophets, Jesus said. This is what they consist in, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the second table of the law, as Jesus describes when he says, the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's the same thing he's talking about here. Be perfect as your father is perfect. Do unto others as you want done unto you. How can we do that in a fallen and broken world? I think it's key for us to recognize that we can do unto others because God has first done for us. We can do unto others because God has first done for us. In other words, we are justified already in Christ Jesus. This is entirely why we can show mercy. We want to be shown mercy, and we have been. And so we can show mercy. We can not use people but love them freely because God has already proven his good care for us. This is Paul's argument in Romans 8.31 when he says, If God has given us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? We can give to others. We can love others sacrificially because God has proven his good care for us. God has freely given rather than using us. And so what we do is we imitate our father. We freely give out of that abundance, out of a place of security, out of a place of peace that has been purchased for us by Jesus Christ. The golden rule calls us to show radical, loving, creative mercy and generosity in imitation of our heavenly father who has done those things for us already. This is the key to all of the kingdom of heaven ethics. All of the things Jesus calls you and I to do flow from this fundamental reality. That God has already done the redeeming work in Christ Jesus. God's redeeming work is the foundation for all kingdom ethics. It's God's work in Jesus through his life and death and resurrection. 
This means that what Jesus gives us in this sermon is not a new list of do's and don'ts to replace the old one. What Jesus gives us in this sermon is redemptive righteousness that flows from his cross work, that flows from his life, death, and resurrection. The kingdom of heaven life then is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. But if all of the do's and don'ts, all of the ethics we're called to, all of the redemptive righteousness, if all of that flows from Jesus, then the kingdom of heaven consists in knowing a person and knowing Jesus and becoming like him as we follow him. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus is summing up all of his teaching here in verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is a vision of life in the kingdom of heaven, out of which flows joy and peace and flourishing. Can you imagine if we all treated each other this way? This is not some kind of utopian vision of if we all just had everything equal and the same. This is a a vision that's much bigger than that. That's a vision of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. This is what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we're longing for. Everybody treating one another as they would like to be treated because God has already mercifully met them with his kindness in Christ Jesus, with his generosity in Christ Jesus. Without a good father, this vision is impossible. No amount of utopian daydreaming will ever get us there. Because we will always be filled with fear that others will use us. We will always be filled with jealousy over what others have. We will always be filled with anxiety that we will lose what we want and what we treasure. With a good father though, this is possible even in a fallen world. Because our good father has secured all of these things for us. He has justified us. He provides for us. He calls us to ask him to live in daily dependence on him. And he frees us then to love others. So what we must do as a people, what we must do is seek to behold our father's mercy and generosity. No other thing will do, no other thing will change us. But beholding our father's mercy and our father's generosity. And we behold all of those things and more. In the person of Christ Jesus, right? He told us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as a community of God's people, let us strive to behold Christ. Day in, day out, that will transform us into merciful people. That will transform us into generous people. That will transform us into those who do unto others as we would like done to us. Because it has been done to us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us see. There are so many concerns in this world that flood our vision. There are so many ways for us to forget or to be neglectful or to be self-deceived. Father, even as we, even as we see the need for this, we, we feel the, the burden of how hard it can be. Father, I thank you that your son Jesus is not unacquainted with these struggles, but that he has been tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. 
I thank you for his precious friendship. Jesus, I pray that as we go through Matthew continually, that you would help us see more of that. How you truly came to those who need a physician. You came to befriend to sinners. You came to call us to you, to your kingdom, and to your Father. And you sent your Spirit. I pray that you'd help us cling to all these truths. Fan into flame the small embers of faith in our heart. We pray. I pray that you would do that now, even as we come to your table and receive the good gift of this communion meal. We pray, amen.